0: Hello, culture watchers, subject matter enthusiasts, and history buffs. I'm Brooke Warner here with Grant Faulkner for another episode of Craft Minded, which is our six-week craft series, and I'm so enjoying it, Grant.
1: Yeah, me too. You know, the only thing I like more than writing is thinking about writing, so it's been (laughs) great to do a deep dive into craft, and I have to say I'm surprised by how much I've already learned, and I, I thought I knew it all.
0: I'm sure. Yeah, there's there's never more to learn about craft, uh, and and today we're delving into a concept that is craft-based, uh, but not one that you see that often. Although I could just consume, you know, any number of these books, and that's how writers place themselves and their narratives at the center of broader historical contexts. And so we're going to talk about that. Uh, and we're doing the show with Danielle Smith, who's the author of the very recently released "Shine Bright" and the subtitle is a very personal history of Black women in pop, which kind of encapsulates that idea of putting, you know, centering the personal in the broader. Uh, And the book is really a tour de force through music. And what I love about it is how Danielle mainly focused on the stars that impacted her personally. And that's another thing that we'll get into. And so she has Diane Warwick and Aretha Franklin, Gladys Knight, Diana Ross, and then more contemporary artists like Janet Jackson, Whitney Houston, Mariah Carey, uh, and also centers, you know, like I said, it just centers her own experience of the uh, artists in the narrative, which is not an easy thing to do, while also trying to keep the book super relevant and interesting. And, and so the fact that she does this so well is really a testament to her capacity as a writer. But reading the book also got me thinking about other books like this, you know, ones that weave personal histories into broader cultural movements. So I wondered, Grant, if you could share with us any favorites that you have that have achieved something like that.
1: Yeah, Definitely. And I just wanted to echo what you were talking about, about how challenging it is to do as a writer, because you have to balance your own personal story with the larger topic you're writing about. You know, you have to kind of calibrate that interplay and make sure they're in conversation with one another and that each part isn't too loud or too soft. And I I mentioned this because that calibration has been very much on my mind uh, for the past year, because the craft book I wrote, The Art of Brevity, mixes in my own personal experiences as a, as a writer and even some of my own short stories along with the main topic of the book, The Aesthetic of Brevity, and to, to add a layer, I also wanted to include a chorus of other writers' voices. So I, I see the book as a conversation essentially between three people in a way. And you don't want any of those three people to be speaking too much or too little. So I hope I carried it off. <laughs> but to riff more directly on your question, um, I was thinking immediately of Pico Iyer's um, Biblio Memoir, which is what Joyce Carol Oates called The Small Genre. And uh, Pico wrote a sort of biography and analysis of Graham Greene, an influential author to him, as he also wrote about his own personal story in the book. Um, And we interviewed him about that book and the process um, on this podcast is called The Man Within My Head. And I also was thinking of John Krakauer's books, especially Into Thin Air and Into the Wild, where he was reporting about events that happened, uh, this this big catastrophe that uh, occurred when a group of climbers um, were climbing Mount Everest in one book and then Chris McCandless's death in Alaska in the other. And Krakauer combines that, you know, reporting, kind of hardcore reporting with an exploration of, of an existential issue, you know, our desire to climb big mountains or disappear into the wilderness. And then he places himself in that existential issue personally, you know, probing his own impulses to put his life at risk for these extreme and perhaps foolhardy experiences in nature. So it's, you know, it's funny because he pulls it off effortlessly, you know, so you don't even think about him having that conversation, but, but it's just so wonderfully calibrated, you know, so that that's the challenge.
0: I mean, that's the thing. It's just not an easy thing to do. And yet some books really lend themselves to that. And I thought it was really interesting. Danielle is going to share with us in the interview about how her editor, who is, you know, very famous editor, Chris Jackson, uh, encouraged her to put herself, you know, to own her space in in the music scene. Uh And so that Really resonated with me, you know, like where a writer might have like an aha moment and think to themselves, gosh, I have to actually be in the book in order for the book to work. Uh, and, and a book that came to mind for me that did this really brilliantly is called One Child by May Fong. And it's about China's one child policy. And I actually interviewed May in a different capacity, like long before we were doing this podcast, but she had a similar experience. You know, she's a journalist. She went to China and she wanted to just write Journalistically about how this policy was unraveling in the 2010s, but she realized that she couldn't do it without making herself a piece of that story because she was a a woman, you know, who would have been an unwanted girl had she been born in China, and she's a Chinese American, Uh, and so you know, it's really interesting to see her bring her lens to that story, and I can't imagine it just like I can't imagine Krakauer's books without him being placed in it because it's that interpretation that made it all the more powerful. Uh, And so it's just, you know, these books are all similar. All of them, all of these authors are integrating their own personal experiences. Um, They're writing about these broader cultural events, like we're talking about, you know, whether it's the desire to climb mountains or, you know, pop culture or whatever the case might be, you know, and they're writing from two perspectives, which is the global and the very micro. And so it makes me think, you know, the political is personal. And uh, it also makes me wonder a bit about whether to achieve a book like this, um, you know, do you think that you have to have a journalistic sensibility?
1: Yeah, interesting question, because I'm just both the authors, I just mentioned Pico Iyer and John Krakauer have a very journalistic or, you know, kind of personal essayist sensibility. So that definitely helps. Although I don't think you have to be a journalist, I think um, you just have to have a sense of when your personal story serves the bigger story. Or when that bigger story is a lens to see your own story in. And I think that that's what really applies to Krakauer is that's how he finds himself in a story. And, you know, in that case of, of the book Into Thin Air, which started as a magazine article, he was climbing Everest on assignment with Outside Magazine. And he was there just to cover the phenomena of commercially guided trips up Mount Everest. And then he nearly died in this big snowstorm that happened. Um, as did, you know, the climbers on the mountain with him that day. So the story obviously changed. Um, it was still about commercially guided trips, but it also became about a history of climbing mountains with his personal story woven in. And again, I just, I think Krakauer needs that bigger journalistic story in order to kind of discover and place his personal story. And that's what makes it so interesting. Um, so maybe that's it. You know, some sometimes we need to to hook our story onto something else.
0: I love what you just said, you know, this idea of like, is the bigger story, you know, needing a particular lens. And I I think that's, again, like what a lot of authors realize, you know, like they're trying to write one story, and then it's like, oh, actually, the way into this is through my personal journey. Um, And I think in some ways, that's where the craft of it all comes in. You know, it does take a nimble mind to do that kind of work, you know, to place yourself in the story and to do that kind of interpretation. And so when I work with my memoir students, I do try to impress upon them all the different options that they have when it comes to making broader connections. So take Danielle's book, you know, as we've been saying, it's about music. And she writes about any given person who made an impact on her. So she has all these different points of entry into her own story and also into the era, right? Like what was going on for her at the time. And, and she gets to make so many choices along the way. I mean, we all do, of course, you know, no matter what genre you're writing, they're just different choices, but the book ends up being a particular iteration of what it could have been. We all have to make those choices. I was thinking how it reminds me of like a choose your own adventure quality, you know, to a a book because you're writing, you're making choices, you're choosing a door to walk through, you're laying down pathways that lead one particular direction. And then by necessity, you're closing other doors along the way. And, you know, when I look at a life like Danielle's, you know, so defined by music as it is, it just seemed to me that she has like a gazillion possible memories to choose from. And so her challenge had to have been which memories to slot into particular chapters, you know, that also had relevance to the story that she was trying to tell. And so she actually does speak to this in her epilogue. And I really recommend that people read this book, if you're interested in this particular topic, or thinking about writing a book like this yourself, you know, it's like, you get to, um, you know, think about your own book as a as a puzzle, or, you know, more like a quilt, I often think. About. You know, you're stitching together that quilt of experience in a way that is ultimately so satisfying to your reader.
1: Yeah, I love uh, that metaphor of quilt. I think it's a lovely way to think about this because, you know, quilts have so many different fabrics and different shapes and textures that can come together. And, and quilts actually allow for so many different types of kind of calibrations. And when I think of quilts, I think some are like a collage of finger painting. They're kind of messy and they have all this cast off fabric and then others can be very patterned and very orderly. So with that in mind, this quilt metaphor, I'm curious, what are some of the things that would make that quilt or puzzle satisfying? You know, what might writers have in mind as they're trying to piece together their own stories in the context of a broader story?
0: Yeah, well, I have three things that I'm going to put out there for people. You know, one is that strong connections need to be made by the author. You know, so often I find people really struggle with that aspect of connection, you know, and like I said, it could be to an experience, to an era, but this is just really about finding something very intentional uh that connects the broader to the personal or vice versa. So connections. And then number two is that the writer needs to find out the right balance between the story. So it's not that there's a formula, but in this case, Danielle absolutely is writing much more about the broader than she is about the personal. So it's more heavily weighted in the cultural context, but I've seen the reverse. And so that's just, you know, figuring that out as you go so that the entirety of the book feels balanced and throughout has some sort of rhythm, you know, that feels um, consistent. And then finally, I'm going to expand out on this idea of interpretation. I see this as a really central part of memoir that you need to say why it matters to you. Uh, That's the lens through which you're writing. And so Danielle is doing that. You know, she's giving her opinion. Sometimes she's lamenting injustices and calling out unfairness because, you know, a lot of these Black women that she's writing about, of course, did not get paid well. Um, it's not apolitical, right? I mean, it's a, it's a book that insists that we give Black female artists their due. And so it has a strong point of view. And so, you know, in that way, it's figuring out how are you interpreting your story? So Danielle is at the center of this story as a kind of cheerleader, uh, you know, a setter straight of history <laughs> a, a fan and a clear-eyed observer and fact finder so you know many things but we we clearly know what her agenda is
1: yeah this book was so fascinating and what i really like about it is how it's a book that you know it somehow defies categories it's part biography of all these female artists part memoir part anthology of of sorts since it covers so many artists over so many decades and and then part history and music history of, of Black women's achievements. And I wanted on that note, I wanted to note that in my early, early days as a writer, when I was 24, I did an internship with SF Weekly, and I had the pleasure of knowing Danielle in her early days as a music reporter and critic. And I have to say that her success is, is no surprise. She was a super interesting, lively thinker and writer way back then. So I look forward to talking with her more after this short break. Hey, everyone. I just want to remind you that a big writing event is coming up in November. It's called National Novel Writing Month. And uh, here are some things to think about uh, if you've done it or even if you haven't done it. One. Part of its premise is not to wait until someday to write your novel, because someday tends not to happen. So make your novel a priority and write it today, you know, during National Novel Writing Month. And the way that that happens is is that National Novel Writing Month, also known as NaNoWriMo, it's a 30-day challenge to write 50,000 words of your story. So let's do some math. That's about 1,700 words a day. That's very doable. Let me tell you, I've seen it happen thousands and thousands of times. And I always describe NaNoWriMo as one part writing boot camp and one part rollicking party. And the boot camp part is, of course, you know, showing up every day and, and honing your discipline to to write and to keep writing and tracking your progress and being accountable. And then the party part is that we have this amazing community surrounding uh, Nanorimo. takes place online, takes place in person. We've got a thousand volunteers around the world organizing writing gatherings in your community, probably. So yeah, write with others. Have fun writing. Also, write the novel of your dreams. You know, we say a goal and a deadline is a creative midwife. So sign up for that midwife. It's all free on nanorimo.org. I'll see you in November in Nanoland.
0: Welcome back, everyone. I feel so lucky to be joined by award-winning journalist Danielle Smith, who's the author of the critically acclaimed Shine Bright, A Very Personal History of Black Women in Pop. Danielle is also creator host of Black Girl Songbook, a podcast that centers the sounds and stories of Black women. She's been a producer and writer at ESPN, a Knight Fellow at Stanford University, editor of Billboard, and the first woman and first Black person to serve as editor-in-chief at Vibe. She's written two novels, More Like Wrestling and Bliss, and her work has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, the Los Angeles Times, and at NPR. Welcome, Danielle. Welcome, Danielle. Hi, how are you? We are great, yes, and excited to talk to you about your new book, uh, Shine Bright. And you're joining us as part of a series that we're doing on craft and I wanted to ask you about the choice that you made with this new book to center your story in a broader historical context. And of course, this could be any context, you know, depending on the writer, but for you, it's music. And so can you tell us about the origins of this book? And, you know, was it always a blend of Black women artists and your story? Or was it at one point trying to be a memoir or at one point trying to be biographical sketches that somehow, you know, informed you that they needed to merge? I'm just really curious about that.
2: You know, it wasn't quite a last minute decision because the book took a long time to write. And I'm so happy to be here with you talking about it. But it was not what I thought it was going to be at the beginning when I started. What happened really was I was I think I had just left Billboard right around the time Whitney Houston died. So tragically. And I was hearing from agents basically pitching me to write quickie Whitney Houston biographies. And most of the, I would say all of the pitches, you know, because we were in the moment of the tragedy we're like, and we want you to talk about the drugs, you know, we want you to talk about, you know, the, the, the abuse in her relationships, that kind of thing, which to me, those things need to be talked about, but I didn't want to lean into them, nor did I want to write anything about Whitney Houston in a hurry, which is what else they were asking for. So I pitched it back and said, I think I would just rather do a history of uh, black women in pop music, which sounded really big. I don't know if I had my head completely around it, but I ended up selling it to somebody. And, you know, just that thing that you go through as a writer where, I don't know, I'm a natural depressive, number one, and I just couldn't get it together to finish it. I got out of my deal with it. It was a great publisher. Um, And I just did a hard reset. New agent, new publisher. And I landed back with Chris Jackson, who edited me on More Like Wrestling and Bliss way back in the early 2000s, those fiction projects, those novels, uh, both of which I'm really proud of and loved working with Chris on. And I'd made it a point. I wanted to be back with him. But I was still slow going writing this huge, you know, history of black women in pop. And I just couldn't finish. And I had one of those come to Jesus moments, or I should say come to Jesus meetings with Chris Jackson. And he said to me, you know, you're going to have to actually finish the book. And I said, I'm going to. And he said, but it's taking too long. It doesn't need to take this long. And I think I want you to consider something. And I said, okay. And he said, I think that you should claim your space as a black woman in music. And the thing is I had been resisting it. I think for years I had resisted writing about myself for years, even with more like wrestling. I wrote about my life, but it was, you know, fictionalized. And so long story short, I realized I just needed to do it. And I knew it was going to be hard. And it was hard, but I'm so glad that I did.
1: That's a great story, Danielle. So interesting to hear the the journey of the book and since you mentioned your novels i'm 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 so impressed by the number of genres you've written in you know you mentioned your novels and you've also been obviously a music journalist and critic so there's a lot of journalism in this book and and also a lot of memoir so you've got a variety of craft tools from different genres of writing to use And I'm curious, what craft skills, especially maybe those you learned from writing fiction, did you lean on to tell the stories of the artists and shine bright, you know, because you you made them, you know, come to life so vividly on the page? I've
2: always been committed, I think, since I started reviewing shows to bringing the reader to the show. Uh, This is something that was impressed upon me by one, two, three, maybe five editors of mine over the years. And I'm grateful for it. Um, People saw that I had an eye for detail. I think a lot of times verbally and would ask me early in my career, but where's all that energy in the sentences? And I think I was like, I've always been told to trim back. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You want color, you want texture, you want uh, things overheard. You know, you want emotion. Uh, And importantly to me, you want context. You want reporting on matters that aren't maybe as obvious. These are the things that I think help my sentences. They just do. I think about, you know, that thing that you learn in creative writing classes, of which I've taken eight billion. Whenever it was an option in school, I tried to take it. And I have my MFA, too. So, you know, just the whole thing of it's an old saw, but it's like to bring all five senses to the work is important to me. It's really important to me. And the history of place, um, I think, has come to matter to me more and more and more. Um, over the years. And I I do have um, being from the great city of Oakland to thank for that.
0: I love it. Yes. And we're joining you from Berkeley and love Oakland too. And it was fun to read about that in the new book. I I was really curious as I was reading about these artists. I mean, I can only imagine the process that you must have gone through to choose who to include and who not to include. And of course, some people make cameos, you know, like they might not get their own chapter, but they show up anyway. So I was just wondering if any readers, you know, maybe blasted you for not including, you know, one of their favorite artists or, you know, just given people's intensity about music, um, what kind of feedback you've gotten with regard to your selections?
2: There have definitely been questions. (laughs) There have definitely been questions. I think I have a bunch of readers that give me you know, some grace with regards to like, maybe there'll be another book or there's not a chapter about Sade in Shine Bright, but she just wrote a big piece about Sade for NPR. You know what I mean? So I don't think there's been tension about it, but there has been curiosity. And my answer remains the same. The great thing about calling it a very personal history of Black women in pop is that there's an announcement from the gate This is very personal. I am not being all-inclusive. I am paying the greatest amount of attention to the women who have mattered the most to me, personally and professionally. The women that have mattered the most to my mother and my aunts and my mother and my aunt's friends. The music from women that mattered the most to my late grandmother and her sister and their friends that's the criteria. That is the criteria.
1: When I read your book I was really thinking about uh, my own favorite artists and how they're a type of friend to me. I have this lifelong conversation with them and 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 sometimes that conversation can change somewhat drastically or dramatically, you know, the more I know about them and the more I learn about them. Sometimes I drop that friendship, actually. And so I was wondering uh, how your relation to the artists you were in conversation with in this book, as you delve deeper into their story, were there any surprises? Did someone, you know, impress you more than you knew they would or or disappoint you? And I'm, I guess I'm just kind of interested in how you change, you know, from, from the outset of the book towards its conclusion.
2: That's such a great Question: The great thing about leaving uh, music journalism and going to back to teaching and going to work at ESPN was that it took me somewhat out of a business relationship with music. I've been in a business relationship with music since my early 20s, and it's a very specific relationship that oftentimes doesn't allow for, like, pure fanship, you know? So all of my 20s, 30s, and 40s pretty much has been looking at artists through a very particular, sometimes very, like, cold lens of are are the readers going to want this? Um, does this artist receive three pages, one page, or six pages. Is this a cover artist? I have to negotiate with a manager that I don't like um, because I want this artist to be a part of whatever platform I'm working for. Like this is a large part of my relationship to music. So when I went back to teaching and then went to ESPN and was writing about culture through through the lens of sport, it just allowed me to come back to fanship in a great way, which was a great way to go into finishing Shine Bright because I just listened to all this music like with an open mind and not thinking about it like a math problem. Like I had been for decades. And the things that I was surprised by was how much I missed, honestly. Like I wasn't able to, I'd never really listened to a lot of opera, in my life, I think I had made up that I didn't like it. I made up a story for myself that I didn't like opera. And then I decide I want to do the the chapter about the Drinkard family dynasty, which ties together Lantene Price, Dionne Warwick, Sissy Houston, and Whitney Houston, all being related by blood. And I was like, I'm going to have to listen to Lantene, aren't I? Because I listened to the other three pretty relentlessly. And so to to listen to Leontine Price over the course of two years or more and to get to know her work and her music and her life story and the history of the town from which she came in Mississippi, like, like you asked me, was I surprised by things? Yes. I also had things confirmed, reconfirmed. Um, there's so many dots in the world to connect, which is The fun part of it for me is why I like to report, because I feel like as long as I report, I'm going to find a dot that connects to what I wanted to connect to. Like, I'm going to find it and it's going to be natural and it's going to be great and it's going to be good. So to. To just have the time to listen and learn about like artists like Millie Small from Jamaica, who was actually the first you know, reggae ska artist signed to Island Records before Bob Marley and brought a big ska, number one pop hit to the world before Bob Marley. All respect to the Marleys and everything that they've done. But Millie was first. I didn't really know anything about her. Her story, her daughter, her travels from Jamaica to the UK, her relationship to the label, like these things, man, listen... This is when I get grateful that I that I have the job that I have, because honestly, it's super I mean, it's super hard, but it's super fun.
0: Yeah. I mean, part of the reason I loved the book so much was because there's all these artists I didn't know about or knew very little about. And then of course there's the artists that loom so large. And so I, I would be lying if I didn't say I wasn't, you know, eating up the Whitney Houston story or the Tina Turner story, you know, and one of the scenes that you show is when you're at dinner and Whitney and Bobby come in and they're high and you're witnessing this. And I just thought about the train wreck, you know, that was Whitney and Bobby in their later years. And, you know, that scene was so gripping because, of course, like so many people, I loved her. And, you know, it was gripping because there she is and she's such a mess and you were there to witness it. And so I sort of felt like I had this friend in you, you know, telling me this story about this troubling encounter. Um, And it's just interesting what you said about Whitney, like you needed time to process that, Um, And I liked in the book, too, how you say, you know, straight up, she said that the bodyguard ruined her marriage. But I also felt at the same time that, you know, you really, there was like this distance there that I felt maybe you were trying to honor Whitney. I, I was very curious about that, you know, whether you wanted readers to make their own conclusions or, you know, whether it was a lightning rod topic to talk about the demise of Whitney Houston. And so because I was such a fan and, you know, people are have such strong feelings about Whitney. I wondered if you could speak to that in your relationship to her story.
2: Literally the chapter probably that um, I worked on the longest because she is my favorite and I remain in mourning. So, and I've told that story that I tell in that chapter about being at the Regal Royal Hotel that night when um, I was sitting with Gerald Levert and his father, Eddie Levert. And Whitney Houston walks in with her husband, Bobby, and Don King is there as well as a, a great deal of, of black people that worked in the music industry at that time. And what a night it was for all of us to kind of see what we had heard and mostly You know, and of course, hoped wasn't true. And I've told the story many times of going out to Whitney Houston's home in New Jersey and interviewing her. I was supposed to get a half an hour. I ended up getting four or five hours and being at the Vibe cover shoot with Whitney Houston and then seeing her again at a Clive Davis party, like I've, I've told those stories. And when I say I've told them, I mean, literally told them like verbally told those stories just to people at, at a dinner party, you know, catch me at the right picnic, you know, I might be talking about that. And it was just time to put it down to paper. And I was very committed to not judging even though sometimes I do remain somewhat angry at Winnie for leaving us. And also because, you know, I miss Bobby Christina as well. Who of course is also gone in much the same way as her mother, but I still try to reserve judgment, especially with regard to the formality of like a proper reported piece of work about her. I believe she deserves that. I I think the reader also deserves to just see her without like hysterics and judgment. And they deserve to see her because I also talk about just her voice. I talk about, frankly, why I think she may have passively, you know, sort of left us on purpose. I talk about the unfairness that she had to deal with as a as an artist. I talk about the the racism and the sexism that she dealt with up to the very very last moments of her life. So, there's a lot of work in every single sentence of my book definitely, but there's probably three times the work in that particular chapter.
1: Well, Danielle, we're gonna end where you end your book, and that's in the epilogue. You muse there about what you left out, you know, all the stories you, you could have told but didn't. And this is a memoirist or a writer's dilemmas, how to know, you know, or think about what to include. And and clearly it gave you pause when you considered all that you could did not include and why. So I was wondering if you could talk about that epilogue and what drove you to feel you wanted to say something about this topic generally. And then also, it'd be great if you have any insights on this front about what we choose to include and not include and any tips you on that front, you know, that you might impart for our listeners.
2: Are most of your listeners writers?
1: Yes. Writers probably aspiring to be published. And writers who are published, too.
2: Well, absolutely. My favorite kind of people. So, hello. <laughs> <laughs> um... And love and luck to you. It's a tough journey, but you guys will all be fine. Um, No one wants to write an intro or an outro. I don't even know if rappers want to. You know what I mean? These are the, um, the hellos and the goodbyes. Once I'm in the party, I'm pretty good. But it's awkward at the beginning. And for me, it's doubly awkward at the end. I used to tell people I was going outside to get a bit of fresh air when I lived in New York city and used to have to go to parties for a living and then just hop in a cab. So then I wouldn't have to say goodbye to anyone. There's so much anxiety tied to tying everything up. It's, um, it's just, it's hard. It's like handing in the paper and, Did I say everything that I was supposed to say that I was meant to say? Everybody's going to hate me. I didn't come to the right conclusions. I left people out. Am I taking into consideration my beginnings and my endings so that everything seems really circular and poetic? I don't want to sound tired or worn out. Or like I'm heaving some kind of big heavy sigh or maybe I want to heave a big heavy sigh and am I doing that well as the outro? So, and for me, particularly with this book, I was like, I just want to continually be in service to the legacies of these artists and also to my own because I did even reporting about my own life Uh, for Shine Bright. So struggling here to remember the exactness of the question, but it seems like it was. Was it hard to write the epilogue?
1: Yeah, and I think um, those choice. Well, exactly what you were talking about. Those choices about what to include and not to include—they're they're pretty torturous. I just finished a book as well, and I was—I was relating to everything you said about like fearing that I left somebody out. <laughs> you know, yes. it's so tough to include everybody, even when you work really hard to do that. And is um, your
2: book a book of nonfiction? Pardon me for interrupting.
1: It is nonfiction. Yeah.
2: Oh yeah. It's hard. It's it's really hard because you feel like you're setting things down like for whatever we like to call the record. Right. So you're setting these things down for the record and it just feels very um, important suddenly. And I think, as I said, and I had to sort of claim my space, not just in music, but I think just as a human on this earth, really, to get through Shine Bright. And I think that helps get through the epilogue. You just have to sort of claim yourself and acknowledge to yourself that your opinion and your work is fine. And so you can close. Like you can close. And whatever anybody has to say about it, they're going to say. And if you're the kind of writer that I am and you are and probably most everybody listening, then you've done enough research to really answer thoughtfully any questions that come your way about your topic. And that strengthens me, you know, as I'm quote unquote finishing. I don't just get anxious about finishing something as long as shine bright. I get anxious about finishing any given magazine piece of writing. Uh, it's, it's an anxious job that that we've chosen. It's hard. And it's, as I said, though, but it's very fun to think and to write things out. Like this is a, I think it's a great path for us all.
0: Thank you so much, Danielle. Congratulations. And, you know, thank you for all these stories. I I learned a lot from reading the book.
2: Oh, I'm so glad. And I'm so glad to be included as a part of this show. And again, the fact that a lot of the listeners are writers is very special to me. So thank you for having me.
1: We'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break.
0: This week's trend is book scan. And Grant, you suggested this one because it's something that became a topic during this antitrust trial we've mentioned previously on the podcast between Random House and the DOJ. Yeah. <laughs> because one alarming finding that came out of that was just the reality of how few copies some books actually sell.
1: Yeah, the trial was like a, a soap opera of sorts, and and everybody in the publishing writing world was was watching it and commenting, and and the trial revealed that fifty percent of books published sell fewer than twelve copies, and that of course went viral on the internet, and you know it was alarming and horrifying, uh, but it was also a very misleading figure because of the way that books are tracked through BookScan, which is the main book sales tracking tool. Uh, But it seems horribly warped to me, Brooke. Um, And so I was wondering, since you've worked on the publishing side of things, can you explain BookScan?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, BookScan is a tool for publishers and nothing more than that. It's not even a very effective one. Ostensibly, it tracks through the register sales, right? So we, the publisher, really track sales to retailers, but BookScan is tracking actual consumer sales. The thing about BookScan is that it's ridiculously expensive. So SheWrites doesn't even have a subscription. I I used to use it when I was at Seal Press though. And even then it only accounts for 70% of sales. So publishers use BookScan as a way to justify advances, which honestly is pretty crazy, but this is also the way that publishing works. Um, You know, we identify comparative titles for all of our books and those Those comp titles are then used as justifications for everything from acquisitions to advances, but also for a barometer of how many copies we think we should print. So, of course, it's a flawed system because comps are always aspirational, you know, and then we don't even have an accurate measure of sales. So you can just see this sort of house of cards that is traditional publishing.
1: If I'm understanding this correctly, publishers choose books that are similar to a given book they're publishing. But to your point, it's aspirational. So you might have a new book and and say that its best comp is Ocean Vuong's On Earth Were Briefly Gorgeous. And then you pull the book scan numbers, which, of course, would be high, even if they're only representative of about 70% of the sales. And then you build a case to push out a lot of copies of your new book based on the fact that Vuong's book is a comp and based on his sales numbers. And hopefully you're the lucky author on, on the other end of that who gets a big advance. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. That's pretty much it in a nutshell. Uh, and I, But I would say that the bigger issue I have with BookScan is the way that Amazon uses it because Amazon gives authors access to their BookScan numbers. But authors often think that that's all sales You know, when in fact it's just a point of sale, it's just Amazon's uh, numbers. So, yeah, I mean, in essence, the industry does have this very archaic and half-functioning system of tracking sales that, you know, I just said most publishers can't even afford to use it. And so the whole thing, you know, when I say it out loud is actually pretty silly, but this is what we have to contend with. And I can imagine outsiders watching the trial were just like, what the heck?
1: (laughs) Yeah, fifty percent of books only sell twelve copies. Caught a lot of people's eyes, and I I read a lot of explanations for that. Though, and BookScan doesn't include things like library sales, which can be huge. They don't include the sales of books that an author might sell themselves at a launch event. You know, I actually sell hundreds of copies of of my book pep talks for writers through the Nanorimo store, and none of those sales are included in BookScan numbers. Um, And also books are published in multiple formats, you know, each with a different ISBN. So your hardcover, paperback, ebook, and audiobook will, you know, all have different sales figures. Also, I just wanted to put that figure of 12 sales in in a year in larger context because there are dramatic differences between, you know, lifetime sales or sales in the first 12 months after publication or sales in any random calendar year. So I might have a backlist title from 1997 that sold 11 copies last year. So anyway, I, yeah, like you, Brooke, I find this a really and, you know, archaic way to evaluate sales because it privileges traditional bookstore sales for one. Um, and it's a warped way to judge an author's sales because as we know, the sales of your your last book will influence the next contract you have, at least if when it comes to traditional publishing.
0: Yeah, totally. And and I, I'm a little bit sorry to our listeners because I feel like a lot of these trends that we share about the industry are somewhat disheartening in us going like, why is this happening? And, and the book publishing industry does need to, you know, bring itself into the 21st century But I also think that these quirks and, you know, weird bits of the industry are very helpful to know. I mean, if you want to be an author in this space, it's important to understand what you're getting into so that you're not ripping your hair out, or maybe you're ripping your hair out, but at least you understand it. So uh, you're welcome.
1: (laughs) Will help people understand why they're ripping their hair out. That's the purpose of this podcast.
0: Exactly. So tune in. We have more trends coming up in the future, and we, you know, we're always mining for trends. So if you have something, let us know. And we also hope that you're enjoying our craft series. We will we'll be right back next week with more. And so we'll see you then.